You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. What's up, music lovers? Welcome back to Modern Musicology. My name is Alan, and I am joined today by Rob Levy. Hey, what's up, kids? And our good buddy, J.M. Tuffley. Tuff, what's going on? Has it been enough episodes yet? Have we been have we been spacing this out enough? Am I back, am I back in the predictable period of time that everybody's okay with? I think I Should think I do fine. the wellness check now? Because I feel like that's a little early. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I think we're good. I think we're good. Uh, this week, we are going to be talking about the brand new, at least here in the States, the brand new Wham! documentary. Before we do that, though, I've got a little bit of listener feedback that I want to share. This is about our interview with Tommy Stenson that came out a couple of weeks ago. We got uh, quite a bit of um, really good feedback from that. Um, I want to share a few Which things. I thought was really cool, by the way. Oh, thanks. That's another good. bit of Thank feedback you. we got. Awesome. Um, the first one comes from Debbie Carlton, who is the wife of Chip Roberts, who Tommy wrote and recorded and produced his newest album with. And she said it was a really fantastic interview. Now, that sounds pretty authoritative to me. But if that's not enough, Bob Peterson, a new listener, emailed to say, I wanted to commend you for the Tommy Stinson interview. This was the first time I had heard your podcast and you did a great job. You asked insightful questions that really allowed Tommy to open up. This was the best interview I've ever heard with him. I could tell you all are fans of his, but you all remain professional. Great job, and I will definitely check out more of your shows. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Bob. And John Rokosny, who is a friend of our dear friend Stephanie Seymour, who is not with us tonight, said, Great job on the Tommy Stinson interview. And commented about how comfortable he felt in the interview and said, it's the relaxed feel you all have. Artists want to have a conversation and to be taken seriously. Keep up the good work. We absolutely will, John. Thank you so much, everybody, for commenting. We really appreciate the great feedback. And we would love to hear from anybody else who would like to comment on anything, even if it's just to suggest a topic to us. You can email us at modernmusicology1 at gmail, or you can leave a comment anywhere you find our episodes. All right. So this week we are talking about Wham! And this new documentary that has just come out here in the States on Netflix. It came out a couple of weeks ago on July 5th. Really good documentary. What do you guys think about it? Just general impressions of it. Well, I'll say this. I, um, and I'm sure this is going to be the running theme of the evening. I came out of it with a much different opinion of Andrew Ridgely than I had going in. <laughs> right. Um, also, it's a unique documentary, spoilers, in that it doesn't have an ugly, violent breakup story. It doesn't have backstabbing and people's egos getting in the way. It is surprisingly, I mean, there are parts of it where it gets so dull because there's no conflict, right? Right. But 
at the same time, it is compelling because it really paints an interesting picture of pop music in the 80s. And, you know, I always thought of Wham! as sort of this like wadded up, throw it away kind of band and never really knew a lot of the behind the scenes stuff. Um, so it was much more interesting than I thought. And as someone who generally will watch any music documentary, um, I thought it was really, really interesting. It's a little slow in places, but it's really, uh, it's really interesting. Well, definitely, what'd you think of it? I really thought that uh, there are a couple of things that it kind of glossed over. Um, the whole Sun City story mm. aspect of that, that, uh, that, that kind of had, that was one of the pebbles that sort of led to the eventual split. Um but again, if you're doing, if the narrative in, in the story is about, you know, these two guys who were best friends and formed a band, um, that really doesn't, there's really not a place for that. And I don't, the other thing is, I don't, while that seems like it would be something, if you're trying to do something a little more in depth, if you're trying to do like an overview of the band and what they actually were, I don't really see the point of including that in there. Um, and also, uh, a lot of this is featured in Andrew Ridley's book which uh, which which is kind of where this kind of falls very similar to in feeling. And it was kind of a light, breezy read. And this kind of felt like a light, breezy documentary that didn't kind of go too far into really anything. Um, but it's a nice overview of the band. Mm -hmm. I found myself surprised by how much I enjoyed it. I was I've never been much of a Wham! fan. There's been a song here and there that I've liked. But for the most part, they are just a little too poppy for me you know wake me up before you go go was not a song that really was on my radar at the time it came out because like my main focus in that early 80s kind of period their early to mid 80s was black sabbath and acdc and you know a lot of other things sort of in that realm and you know while i was still listening to top 40 as well Wham just kind of seemed a little too lightweight for me. And, you know, the one song that I really don't like that much ever since I've watched the documentary has been stuck in my head. So obviously it has a power all its own. And that is, um, I don't want your what? freedom. That's the other freedom. That's the other yeah, freedom. That's the original freedom. The so other that's the original freedom. freedom. Right. I didn't Because like Freedom it. 90 is a riff on that song. Yes. And Freedom 90, I liked a lot. But that original one, I was like, oh. So anyway, I, I really found myself enjoying it a lot. And I was very surprised. I found it very eye-opening. I learned a lot from it. There was a lot of stuff about them that I didn't know. And it really reminded me of that incredibly short but intense time period that they existed. I mean, we're talking like three and a half to four years with this meteoric rise to one of the biggest acts in the world. That's crazy. Yeah. And they sort of had a plan. They're like, this is how we want to do it. We're going to do it. We know it's only going to last so long, but we're doing it, which I think is really interesting. And, you know, I think that having as much archival interview stuff with George Michael, the balance yes. out, the yeah. originally stuff yeah. really yeah. made it. It prevents, in, in terms of the documentary, it prevents it from being entirely Andrew's story. Yes. And it very well could be. Um, but to hear sort of interviews where George reinforces, no, no, th there wouldn't be a band without Andrew. Yeah. And, and 
so it sort of reinforces the idea that you know so that it doesn't all come from one side exactly yeah so Tuffley, tell us about Andrew's book and tell us what you found in that book that maybe you hadn't known before and how much of it is reflected in this documentary. Like how, how do the two jive? Um, it jives pretty well, actually, um, the, with the book. I mean, the book does go into a little more detail about things that were glossed over in the documentary, um, uh, like the Sun City incident, like some things that they were kind of arguing back and forth with management about certain things they wanted them to do near the end. There were also, there's also some things that weren't in the documentary about like how stupid and goofy they both were oh. <laughs> and how some of those wham pop tunes are actually in jokes. Okay. Like, like wake me up before you go, go is, is actually, and he kind of explained it in the documentary as the note he left on his door. Yeah. when he woke up one morning when he was staying over at Andrew's house. Um, that is part of that story. Um, but also it's just that they needed, you know, the way, particularly when they needed a pop song and they went to these goofy, stupid ideas, which they knew were goofy, stupid ideas. And they thought, oh, this is going to work. And we're, we're kind of, they were surprised themselves that some of it worked. So... Also, the story about Careless Whisper, which is uh, there is a longer kind of drawn out version of the book, but it is very much what that is in in, in the documentary, which is mm. they had they had been kind of working on that song. That, that was a thread of the book that they had been taking stabs at that song in various forms over the entirety of the band. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it tracks pretty well with what that is. There's a lot. There's a little bit more. I think there's a chapter at the end, uh, which may have been added in the edition I've got. But there was a chapter at the end where he wrote like a postscript on, you know, hanging out with George or calling George and some of the times after Wham. Uh, the documentary very much ends at the final. Um, and uh, there is another, I think, chapter or so where, where Andrew kind of goes into what his life was like after the band and what uh, his relationship to George after the band and uh, stuff like that. So they didn't focus too much about afterward, which I, right. I felt that was probably the best for the best. I mean, it's a yeah, wham think, documentary. Yes. You know, it doesn't need to go into George's solo career. And, and also he freely admits he really didn't do anything noteworthy after that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think some of this too is that since his passing, the George Michael estate's been very guarded with his yeah. legacy. So I think to a certain extent And this was an approved documentary, so mm -hmm. you know, yeah. we weren't gonna get but very I, far. We weren't gonna get, you know, dark secrets. But again, I don't think that was really necessary for what this was. So Yeah. But I also think too they were very sort of guarded with what they were gonna do in terms of um get digging into stuff. Yeah. So I you know and obviously they don't really need to or get sidetracked and becomes kind of a muddled mess. But I think just focusing on the Wham years really gives you an insight of what pop music was like in the early 80s, especially coming out of New Wave and the New Romantic movement and as a counterbalance to like austerity Britain and Thatcher. You know, you've got a lot of different things going on and they don't cover any of that. They just get into the band and the music. And I think that's really great. And I think, you know, one of the things that I loved about this, too, is that it sort of you can draw a line from what happens with Wham to things like the Spice Girls later. And that's sort of like this is a pattern that happens over, over and over again. You have a band that has like a shelf life of like three to five years. 
that's a superbly huge pop band and then they just kind of go away and this sort of very easily could have fallen into that kind of redundancy but it really gave some character to the people involved i would have liked well i do appreciate having the both of the narratives of george and andrew i would have liked to have heard from pepsi and shirley just to kind I of agree. get a nice little yeah just to, just to get a little bit of uh perspective. I 100% agree with that. And, you know, going into the documentary, I really hadn't remembered what a presence they were. I mean, everybody knew them. Everybody knew their names. Everybody who listened to Wham Records and knew Wham from the radio or whatever knew who Pepsi and Shirley was. I really wish that they had been involved a little bit more. I mean, I know the story is about the friendship between Andrew and Michael meeting in school, the way that the friendship developed, the way that they, you know, planned the career and all that kind of stuff. But I really would love to have heard from them. And, you know, it's really interesting too, because there's the nugget of a story there that we don't get necessarily the complete background of, of when George calls Andrew and says, Hey, I want to tell you something. Can you come over? And he finds her with Shirley and then she leaves the room. So obviously is some sort of I think pre-knowledge of that conversation with her. I think the book goes in a little further on that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of little interesting things I would like to have known, but at the same time, this documentary is very crisp with time. It doesn't go too long and it doesn't go too short, which is also a great thing about it. I agree. I feel like for the time period that it's trying to cover, I think it was exactly the right length. You know, it focuses on that four year period with, the background of their friendship. And I loved seeing a lot of the archival photographs and, and footage that we saw of them in school. You know, I thought I I really enjoyed that. I thought it was really eye opening to see how long their friendship had been around, you know, like how, like their, the wham origin story, basically. I really liked too, how they, how they use the notebooks as kind of a nice little guide. Yeah. The the scrapbooks. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was a neat touch. Gave it a nice little visual aesthetic, I think. Yeah. It also paints a really good disparity between Andrew's parents, who are kind of really supportive of what he was doing, as opposed to George's parents, who most of the, it seems like, and I I wasn't really sure about this, but most of the time it seems like George kind of lived most of the time at Andrew's house because his it, dad didn't approve of yeah. what he was doing. Yeah. So... But uh, but it but it seemed like a kind of nice juxtaposition between between how the parents felt about all this. I thought it was really interesting that you have that archival uh, interview clip of George talking about his father, his relationship with his father, the way that the father didn't approve the kind of things that the father would say to him. But you also got that interview footage of. George's father saying, yeah, I did say those things. And once they sort of did their first big American tour and it it took that long until George's father finally said, I was wrong, you know, good for him for everything that he's done. I mean, it took that much for George to get that from his father. That's insane. (laughs) But I loved, I loved hearing George's father admit that stuff. Yeah. You know, I thought that was really cool. So I'm going to, I'm going to talk about Andrew a little bit. Yeah. Because I'm telling you, I, this is the part of the story that I was most surprised about that when they met, when they become buddies in school, it's Andrew who is 
the cocky one. It's Andrew who is the outgoing one. It's Andrew who borders on being the troublemaker kind of kid. He's the one who put it all together. He's the one who said, I want to form a band with my best friend. He basically dragged George Michael into doing this thing, you know? And George says there would not be a wham if it weren't for Andrew. And that's amazing. I mean, that's the kind of story that that you don't really get otherwise, because when you just know them from the radio or from the videos, you and I'm guilty of this myself. You think, what does this Andrew guy actually contribute to this? You know, well, it's well, it's also important to know that, you know, in 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 the route of the story that, you know, Andrew starts out as being the idea. And George, I think, says this at some point in one of the interviews. Mm -hmm where he says, you know, I had a vision of, you know, the kind of rock star I wanted to be. And it was Andrew. Right. So I base the entire George Michael character off what I, th a caricature of Andrew. Exactly. Uh, George said that Andrew was the guy who had the ideas about what kind of music they were going to do. He had the ideas about their look, their style, all that stuff came from Andrew. And that blew me away. The interesting part is when the manager says, you know, wham is Andrew and the fake Andrew. <laughs> right <laughs> referring to george right yeah i was i was really surprised because okay here's the thing there's a few different acts that they kind of fall in line with as far okay. as like the the visual you know and you wonder is if the andrew ridgeley's of these groups you know if you're not the roland orzabal if you're not the daryl hall you know, what are you actually contributing? And and it's interesting to kind of the parallels there because Andrew sort of was the impetus behind a lot of those early songs of theirs. Mm -hmm. Just like on the first Tears for Fears album, Kurt Smith was an equal contributor as far as songwriting and lead vocals go. Yeah. And it wasn't until really the second album that Roland kind of really rose up to be the the powerhouse of that duo. And from that point on, he pretty much dominated their sound. And yeah. you you kind of think, is is Kurt just getting left behind in the dust? And that's exactly what I always assumed about Andrew. Yeah, and I think one of the most moving parts of the documentary is that when Andrew's talking about the songwriting, and he just kind of realizes he's going to have to relinquish the main songwriting. And you just feel for him because like he loves doing this. He's good at it. But again, he's putting this concept of a band ahead of his own ambition, which is a really fascinating story in and of itself when you look at their legacy and things. Agreed. And I think and not, not, not that it goes through as a thread in the documentary, just besides the fact that they continue to work on it. But I think that's kind of the underlying reason that George kept pushing to make Careless Whisper a thing. Mm. Yeah. That, you know, that, 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 that's the thing that they both have. Right. Which, mm -hmm. which, which is kind of an unspoken thing that don't mention it in the documentary, but that does seem to be like part of George's drive to go, okay, I want to make this song, you know, I want to make this song a reality because it's one of the only things that they've done you know, that one of the last things they would have done together. Yes. In terms of that before he fully like seized control creatively. Yes. Um, it was interesting to see George's musical drive. Uh, 
yeah. as a songwriter, as a producer, and the way that he sort of came into the studio with a fully formed idea about what their music, what his songs were going to be like to the point of, you know, being that sort of demanding producer, the one who, who drives the project and to see him sort of emerge almost out of Andrew's shadow, you know? Yeah. It was, was really, really compelling. I thought. I think too, that you have two, even though they've been lifelong friends, they're fundamentally different personalities. Mm. So, you know, the outcome going into this documentary, where this is going to go. Yeah. But the way that you have these two fundamentally different personalities and these two sort of larger than life personalities that operate and function in two completely different ways. The fact that this does not self-destruct into like yeah. some sort of like fist fight is really beautiful and nice. And, you know, um, outside of being a documentary about a band, I just love that it's like a really great documentary about a friendship. Yes. You yes. know? Yes. Um, which is really terrific. You know, I wish there was a documentary about Lennon and McCartney that felt like this or something, you know? Oh, yeah. It's just you really you really get an insight to who these people were as people. I agree. But I think even even with Lennon and McCartney, I think there was a competition there. Yeah. Where, whereas I don't think there wasn't any competition in Wham. At, at a certain point, Andrew realized that George was this insane talent that was kind of sprouting up. Yeah. And he'd be stupid to kind of stand in the way, which he says something to that effect in the book. I think he does also in the documentary. Yes, he does. But, you know, it just sort of made sense for him to kind of get out of the way of that. And he did not mind doing that. Yeah. If, if that meant the band, A, the band was bigger and that eventually that he became, as long as George was happy, he was reasoning. Um, because, you know, Andrew was just simply happy being in a successful band and doing the thing he always wanted to do. Yeah. Um, even if he wasn't like co-writing it, which I guess later might have come back to bite him. But. Well, yeah. it seems honorable. <laughs> right. Um. I find that really compelling as well, because as we talked about, Andrew was the driving force for getting this thing started. It's it's really a tough thing to let go of something that you were so passionate about, that you were you, you were the one pushing for, that you were driving the bus, basically. And it's hard to step out of the driver's seat and let someone else take the wheel. And then to the point of stepping off the bus and letting the bus leave you behind. I mean, that, that says a hell of a lot about Andrew's character. I think. I think according to the book, the only, there were only two disagreements. Well, there were a couple of disagreements, but the most, the only major ones they ever had was how to sign out, how to sign off. Yeah. Uh, because, um, Andrew and the management also wanted to do a larger scale tour that would have been, okay, this is, this is our last tour. There you go. Um, George was more insistent on let's just do one. Yeah. Let's just do one and then move to the next thing. Um, so that, that was really the only major, major disagreement they sort of ever had in terms of the band and that includes George taking over writing all the songs. So, <laughs> right, yeah, 
I mean, the other interesting thing, too, that they don't really get into is that Andrew originally banked all of his money. Yes. And so he was not sort of one of these people that came stumbling out of the 80s looking to do anything. I mean, he did all right. He raced cars for a while and um, dated supermodels. Yeah. Yeah. Married the married a girl from Bananarama. You know, yes. He did all right. So um, he's not by any means in bad shape. And I think that the big thing he wanted to do is I think that he wanted to sort of get this monkey that's been on his back for like 20 or 30 years of that. He's sort of like the superfluous guy in the band. Yeah. I think yeah. that bothered him. And I think the book and subsequently the documentary is sort of setting that straight. Um, and I think that was sort of like the main function of him sort of writing the book and getting it out there. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. Well, I think the other thing is um, because he had, he'd been, I think he's been doing interviews where he was talking about this, that um, he was one of the inner circle with George who knew uh, to knew who knew about the big secret. Yeah. Um, and did not divulge that even when they broke up and didn't yeah. divulge it until George publicly came out. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And you can see some of that when they, there's an interview with them that they showed an archived interview and they talk about girls and stuff, chasing and stuff. And yeah. Andrew takes a lot of those questions and sort of, you can tell in that interview, he's really shielding George from answering those types of questions yeah. and making him feel awkward. And then he's also yielding a lot of the, Oh, we've started to work on our new record stuff to George. So it's really interesting in that they sort of have this, um, double act thing down where everybody's got a role. Right. I, but, I thought that was really clever. And also, and also like the bit where he's, he's a a Andrew's antics are in the tabloids, which yeah. he thought was probably the best thing after all, since that would keep yeah. George's then them from following George around that they would just follow Andrew around. Right. But also, you know, that, that, that clip that Rob is talking about um, where Andrew fields the questions about the girls. He also downplays it because he yes. said something yeah. like, yeah, there's a lot of girls, but that's not really our focus. You know, we're focused on the music and the touring and, you know, the business and all this kind of stuff. And, and so he didn't play it up to be like, Oh yeah. I mean, and let's, let's just face it. These are two of the most beautiful people on the planet. And I mean, they are just physically radiant, you know, so they could easily have played up the girl angle. Well, one of them could have. <laughs> and also we, and, and as one of the other kind of things that kind of run through both Andrew's account of it and the documentary is sort of George's growing confidence as not just as George Michael, but just as a person. Mm. Um, and some of that may have been carried on by keeping up the persona, but um, he kind of came out of his shell a bit more. Um, yeah. and, and, and that sort of, sort of helped him. He, Andrew at the, at, at the point of the band assumed, well, that's just him growing as a person, but it's also, as you find out in the documentary, it's a threat of, well, George is trying to be Andrew to become this thing, mm -hmm. which is, mm -hmm. which is really interesting because George yeah. never sees himself as attractive in that way. Yeah, that was the part that really surprised me. I mean, look at the guy. I mean, yeah. he, he has a mirror. He knows what he looks like. <laughs> yeah. 
and you see them in the 80s with their like big fluffy hair and they're yeah. just like greek gods <laughs> it's just amazing yeah the presentation and everything that they did was so planned and meticulously executed that it's really that's a whole separate sub story of its own yeah. you know i didn't notice it at the time i mean i knew that they had the whole good looks thing going on and and all that and i was kind of dismissive of them because of of that right sure. so was but, i um but i also think that they they knew how to play the game but they yeah. were going to play it only as far as they wanted to and only as long as they got something out of it Mm. Which I yeah, I am fun. surprised they sort of focus. They they sort of spent any time with the China thing as much as they did, um, because the China thing is in the book. The China show is kind of what the, on on reflection they both realize. Oh wait, we were played, mm. which leads into why you don't do the Sun City show later, um, which is not covered in the documentary. Right, but I, I'm surprised they went there and didn't go to the other place, but. I really had forgotten all about the Sun City issue until yeah. you brought it yeah. up tonight in our in our conversation. I, and now that I think about it, like you're saying, if you have if you address that that series of shows in China the way that they did in the documentary, I mean, maybe they feel like that's that covers that topic enough. You don't need to do a second run in with that yeah. with Sun City. You know, even though Sun City may have been a bigger deal. And may have been, you know, more of a, you know, sticking point between the two of them. Yeah. I don't know. And, you know. Well, it was mostly a sticking point between mostly George and the management. Yeah. Because actually, before the last show, um, all of the management gets sacked because of the Sun City suggestion. Ah. Which okay. is not mentioned in the documentary mm -hmm. because the manager is getting interview time in the documentary. Right. But, um, but, um. Yeah, I believe if I'm not mistaken, if I'm following the timeline from the book, um, the Sun City suggestion comes up at the same time that, oh, let's do a last tour that comes up. And the Sun City suggestion itself is what gets the management fired. Gotcha. Before the final show. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I wish they would have talked about China a little more, too, because I remember that in real time and that I was really interested in them going to as a history person, but also as you know, somebody was listening to music then, I was really fascinated at how that was going to go. And I really would have wanted to see more about why they were asked to play, what they did when they were there, sort of how it affected them. You know, it's kind of treated like their summer vacation. And it may be too, that they just don't have a ton of footage from as well. I remember there was a, what was it? There was a home video. Thing there was a VHS. China stuff. Oh yeah, that's but right. Yeah. Yeah, but it was, it was a, a China lot of videos. concert and then like a video collection or something. Yeah. I remember that that that, that was a thing, but I don't think but uh, that was just all that was just all fluff stuff and that was the the footage that you see in the documentaries from that. And it may be too that they've got the best quality stuff they can use. Yeah. Another thing that we saw happen in real time that I remember vividly is the their involvement in Do They Know It's Christmas and in Live Aid. And I was glad to see those two things represented as well. But the thing that I didn't know was the story behind Do They Know It's Christmas, where George said to Andrew, we are going to have four number one hits this year in one calendar year. And they were just barely kept from it by Do They Know It's Christmas. 
because nothing could have, you know, conquered that thing. I mean, that was a behemoth. But well, no, they, they had set the train up. They had set the train up and the, the last Christmas had literally been promoted. Yes. Had already started to be promoted. And that mm-hmm. was going to be their single with full oh, yeah. knowledge that that was going to be their single. Yeah. Um, when in the documentary, it, 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 the funny thing is it's viewed in the, it's framed as, wow, this is a really cool thing and this is awesome. But at the same time, oh shit, I don't get my number one. Right. Which I thought was really, really revealing and interesting too. Yeah. The, the, the whole George tugging against his selfishness. Yeah. And they, I thought that was a real yeah. interesting contrast to the story. Yes. What they didn't really talk about, they talked about playing in Live Aid and being invited onto the stage with Elton John. And this is George Michael's idol. And here they are on stage in front of a billion people and they're playing with George Michael. What they didn't talk about was Wham's set. Like they basically canceled themselves because the show was running long and they said, we won't do our set. And Elson said, well, why don't you come on and do a song with me? Wasn't it because Queen ran long? Uh, I I, th- I think a lot of things were running long, but Queen did take, I think, more time. Because Queen, Queen did like, any of the uh, other what was the deal? Did. Queen did like two more songs than they were supposed to. <laughs> Their set was like 25 minutes, which was longer yeah, than like, anybody. <laughs> yeah, they did like, like two more. I think they did. They were supposed to cut Bohemian Rhapsody down and they just did the whole thing. No, they did cut it down. No, they did. But they, but they, but but basically like Queen and a bunch of other bands run along. But yes. Yeah. But I thought that was so magnanimous of them. You know, we will sacrifice our live aid set to get this thing back on schedule. And then Elton says, well, just come out and sing one of my biggest hits that I've ever had in my entire career, because I know you're going to sing it like, like a storm, which he did. And I don't know. I, I just thought that was a cool little angle to the story that would have taken 35 seconds to to tell but they didn't quite tell it i also love the sidebar story of that that they donated all the money from last christmas yeah yeah so the two apparently right which i didn't know so the two biggest singles of that year both monetarily supported one charity and that's just incredible because there's an interview um because again george is talking about this is great and you know and in the back of my head, I'm going, shit, there's our number one. There goes our number one. Yeah. And then he's like, because I'm feeling guilty about this. Um, it's great that it's great that we've donated the profits for that for all time to this, which <laughs> kind of makes up for my selfishness on wanting that number one, mm-hmm. which they do the postscript at the end where they go, okay, well, last Christmas did actually go number one in 2020. So. Right. Right. I thought the story of George's drive to become accepted as a songwriter yes. was, was really interesting. You, you, you don't really think of when you're, you know, in the audience and you're on the outside and you're kind of looking toward them. You don't really think of him as being that insecure guy, that one who just wants to be accepted by his peers. I mean, that I, I found that really, really insightful, really interesting. Well, I think it's not just his peers. He just wants to be accepted in some way. Well, yes, that's what I mean on different levels. The other thing is, is that, and it goes back to the whole confidence thing. It comes back to the, you know, do I, do I come out thing? Yeah. It, it, it crosses all of that being, you know, he just wants to be accepted for something he's doing. 
because it's not something his dad's giving him until the very end of Wham. Yeah. And it's not something he's getting from critics because, you know, they're writing them off as this airy pop disposable band. Yeah. And, you know, he's not getting it, you know, in any sort of personal relationships other than the one he's got with Andrew. Mm hmm. About the coming out thing, I mean, we're talking about this as what, 1985, 86, you know, around that that time. Um, and that is that's a really tough time to be in that situation where there's such a stigma against AIDS and all that stuff. And this had to be a really stressful time for George. I mean, look at the way that the press was treating Freddie Mercury. Freddie was not out, but Freddie was going through the illness that was becoming very public and the press dogged him and hounded him and uh, attacked him to get some kind of admission of, you know, is this AIDS? Are you gay? You know, they just tore him apart. So you can understand George not wanting to, to go through that. Well, Freddie never really came out. Not really. Not really. I mean, Freddie never really came out. Elton to Elton really didn't come out until much, much later. Yeah. And was not out in this period. Correct. So there was a pretty big, there was still a pretty big stigma, particularly in Britain about, you know, about sexuality. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think some of it too, is that they're trying to break right. This is right when they're trying to break into America. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's part of it. I also yeah, think part true. of it too, could be the record label. Part of it though, too, is that, you know, even though he's usually famous, whether he's straight or gay, George is not always completely comfortable in the public limelight. And he's seeing what the limelight is doing to Andrew yeah. with, you know, his womanizing and stuff. And I think he also quickly realizes that maybe this isn't the right time. The other thing that the movie doesn't really go into that's fascinating is that George Michael had a really intimate friendship with Princess Diana. Yeah. And yeah. One of the conversations that they had was that we're both living these lives controlled by other people in many ways. Mm. And we're both living sort of like lives where we don't get to be ourselves. So I think that that is also kind of at play as well. So I think that I think it's a lot of different things. You know, yeah. I think you're looking at the world at the time. And yeah, you know, I know it was AIDS. AIDS is such a big thing at the time. There is such an enormous stigma against it at the time. I mean, it had to be an incredibly difficult position to be in. Yeah. And also, it was a very different reaction from where when he told Andrew and everybody kind of in the inner circle to. And then I think the way it's put in the documentary is, and, and it kind of goes a little further in the book is, should I tell dad? Yeah, of course. And, you know, it's the conversation is sort of briefly cut off in, in the documentary, which is, you know, everybody convinces him not to do that. Right. <laughs> Right. Because just personally, that's a bad idea. But also, you know, I think from the interview and the way that it's framed in the documentary, that because George felt like because he didn't tell his dad, that kind of put the brakes on him kind of doing it everywhere else. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Which, that, which really didn't. I don't know if that's how that was intended, but that's kind of how it sounds. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. Um. Have either of you ever watched the George Michael documentary? I've seen parts of it, but not all of it all the way through. I haven't either. And I'm, I'm really kind of interested in seeing it now because I want to see a more of the story after wham. I want to, you yeah. know, kind of get into some of 
you know, these things that we're talking about in the Wham documentary with him, his drive for songwriting excellence and being a producer and all that kind of stuff and, and, and breaking out on his own into a solo career, how all of that stuff kind of plays into, you know, his person. I mean, cause he had enormous success as a solo artist. I mean, yeah. completely eclipsing the enormous success that Wham had. And that's saying something because they were yeah. huge. I, I think um, I think his solo career was sort of, I don't know, in, in terms of material was an answer back to, especially Faith directly is, is sort of a call and response to a lot of Wham's catalog. Hmm. Um, and then Listen Without Prejudice is where he's trying to struggle against. Yeah literally the entire machine but also saying the thing he wants to say without saying the thing he wants to say in a way so i think i think even the the last the the kind of final interview comments that they have in the documentary sort of foreshadows his you know growing unease with well i got what i wanted i'm famous but i'm not sure i'm i'm not terribly comfortable with this either right and i'm not comfortable with this image i've created and maybe i've taken this too far yeah and and that sort of that is kind of the unfortunate thing that eventually will play out in his career where he has to fight against that. And at some point that causes him quite a few issues later down the line. All right. So what are any lasting reactions that you have to this thing? Like, does this change your the way that you'll listen to Wham music? What effect does this documentary have on you? I think it gives me a better understanding of. Wow, where I'm as a garage band. Because they kind of are. <laughs> That's true. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of always sort of had a, a, a I, Wham's not my cup of tea. And a lot no. of George Michael's stuff is not my cup of tea. But I've always had kind of a respect for George Michael's sort of kind of sponge of music. Mm. Particularly and, and in the documentary where he's talking about, uh, you know, I got, I was shitting myself working with Jerry Wexler. And then I dumped all of that stuff because he was wrong. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is a ballsy move. Because, I mean, he goes, he goes to Florence. He goes to Florence, Alabama. He works with, you know, the Wrecking Crew. He works with, you know, Jerry Wexler. And they do this. And, they, and you hear part of it in the documentary. Um, that He's just like, they, he played it for Andrew. And they both look at each other and go, they've, they've mutilated this thing. Yeah. What, what have they done? And they were wrong. Um, so I have a lot of respect of how much of musical encyclopedia that George actually is. Yeah. And I don't know if you've seen this, Rob, you probably have, but there is a clip that one of my favorite clips on YouTube ever is the clip of George Michael on a talk show. I don't think it's jukebox jury. I think it's something else. It's a BBC show. And he's on there and he's going in about how important Joy Division were against Morrissey. Oh, <laughs> like he's going deep. He's citing stuff. And it's like, you go, hmm. you go, George Michael. I don't I, I, I'm not into much of what you do, but that that right. I'll take that. I, that I'll co-sign. That's really interesting. You know, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't really change my opinion of wham because the biggest thing they gave us was the earworm in the 80s right and there are songs of theirs that i will always associate with certain memories 
you know, places and times and things. So some of them are close to me for that reason, more than the music. Freedom is like, my God, the, the juice bar I went to when I was a kid, they played that thing like five times a night. And it's to the point where I'm going to start throwing things if I hear it. Right. Right. Sure. Um, wake me up before you go, go. I, I remember seeing the video go and I'm like, I don't really like this song, but what the hell is this? And I, I really kind of like some of the stuff they did with everything she wants and some of the other stuff. Right. Um, I hated the edge of heaven, but I looked at the thing I looked at wham that made me, inter that made me think it was interesting. is just sort of this idea that they melded club music with like basically white soul. Yeah. Right. And that they wore their, their affinity for Motown and Stax and black soul records with pop. And you, one of the concert clips, you hear them covering a chic song. So you kind of hear that. And that's like the first tour. That's footage from the first tour where they're doing, or they just kind of yeah. throw that in. Yeah. So I really like, okay, these guys aren't just being put together and being pretty. They actually listen to music and take ideas from their inspirations. And I, and I did appreciate that. And I remember outside of that interview that you're talking about, reading a couple things in Smash Hits and Star Hits, I'm dating myself, where George Michael would talk about certain records. And I'm like, wow, he is really diving deep in, in a couple different things. Yeah. Um, he also was the guy when they were recording, Do They Know, it was, Do they know It's Christmas? It was taking the downtime to talk to other people about their careers and how they were doing it. And, and like he had conversations with Phil Collins about how do you manage your money? You know, how do you renegotiate your royalties? You know, he had some really good business conversations and downtime. Like, uh, didn't they renegotiate their royalties not long yeah. after that? <laughs> they, they were so big at the time. They didn't have to do that. There's a, there's a thing in the, in the movie where they talk about, they got off the road and they come home and the office is like, Oh, they want to, they want to talk to you about doing this. They very easily could have just said, we're exhausted. We're off the road. No, we're not doing it. So I think that's interesting. I mean, I, I appreciate them more for what they did and how they did it. It's still not necessarily completely my thing. No, it's still very much disposable pop music. I will say that wham rap has held up amazingly well as a piece of uh, pop music as and social commentary because it is all about being on the dole of the unemployed and young yeah. and that's rich britain yeah. yeah and it is a very subversive record when you think about it and that's the thing that puts the music press on their heels because when they do the turn to club tropicana yeah that's oh. when that's when the knives come out because oh oh you're not doing those songs anymore okay <laughs> right. and club tropicana is a record that i'd never have much cared for and then hearing it now again i'm like okay, I don't love this, but I get it now. You know, I mean, the stuff I don't like, I get why they're doing it, you know, but stuff like a different corner is really like when he does like the really sad melancholy stuff, that stuff's yeah. fantastic. And the stuff at the end, I like, like I really thought battle stations was good. And I thought that um, I'm your man was kind of just catchy enough to kind of work. Um, you can hear the beach boys in there a little bit. You can hear yeah. that West beach coast. Boys and Motown and, yeah, kind of crossed in. Yeah, the, the call and response stuff. Yeah, yeah, they they really sort of they really are a throwback to sort of like the fifties doo-wop slash pop band. They're really kind of a throwback to that in a contemporary context. 
which I appreciated a little more after this as well. You know, in 1988, I saw George Michael on the faith tour. Um, it wasn't a thing that I was really that interested in, in seeing, but, um, my best friend at the time was away at college and he called me and he said, would you take my little brother? My little brother wants to go see George Michael. Will you please take him? I said, of course I will. And I, I agreed because the opening band was the Bengals. And I was like, shit. Yeah, I'll go see the Bengals. I love them. There was terrible weather and we had to stop because like a hurricane was moving in. So I completely missed the Bengals, but we saw George's set and, and it was, I will say it was a good show and it was mostly his solo stuff, but he did a few wham songs and a couple of like soul covers. Like he did a Stevie wonder song and uh, lady marmalade, that kind of thing, you know? Um, but it was a good show. Uh, and of course, when they did faith, like, you know, the place just erupted, you know, but that was my one experience with either of the Wham boys. I'm glad I got that one experience, at least, you know, I think we could say that if anybody listening hasn't watched the Wham documentary yet, we recommend it because I found it to be quite eye opening. I learned a lot of new things about it. I have a new appreciation for both of the guys in the in the band. So spend 90 minutes and, and watch the film. I thought it was great. All right. So we're going to take a super quick break. We are going to be right back with our picks of the week. So don't go anywhere. For over six years, the 42 cast has worked to provide panels discussing topics from every corner of the Geekosphere. Continue with us as we count down to episode 200 and try something a little different. Celebrity guest contributions. Yes, Emma Dumont from The Gifted is partnering with us to talk about science, movies, and so much more. You can only find this great content on The 42 Cast. It's your ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything. Welcome back. Rob, what have you been listening to this week or reading or watching other than the Wham! documentary? So uh, I'm going to start with the fact that the day we're recording this, uh, we lost Jane Birkin. Um, who is born born British, but uh, lived in France, was with Serge Gainsbourg for 10 years, also used to be married to John Barry. Mm. And just as a singer, an amazing voice. I mean, you've probably heard um, Je t'aime, ne non plus, and a couple of her other things. She does a really great cover of I'm Not In Love. But if, if you get a chance to listen to any of the Jane Birkin records, especially the ones with Serge Gainsbourg, please do. They're incredible. Uh, her voice is great. Much more than a pretty face and a, and a designer. So um, I do want to start with that because it's uh, great. And I'm a sucker for that French pop stuff. So um, I've been listening to a couple of things. Uh, there's a band called Soft Science that um, has been kicking around for years. And they just signed to Shelf Life and they have a new single out um, called Sadness. Uh, I really like that a lot. And if you kind of like that sort of shoegaze textured sound thing, um, I recommend it. I recommend that. Also, um, Tuffley will know how infuriating this is for me, but there's a great band called Bedroom, B-D-R-M-M. Again, no vowels. <laughs> oh, my God. But no these... punctuation points, which is probably good for you. These yeah. stupid just... bands that try to be clever with their spellings. But, you know, uh, so, but they're from Hull, and they're... Uh, Record is out now called I Don't Know. It's really, really good. I'm, I'm quite enjoying that. Um, also enjoying the new Lloyd Cole record, which is synthesizers on it. It's a little bit of a departure from him. 
and uh, that's really good as well. And lastly, the uh, Swans are back with the Beggar, their 16th record. So if you're kind of in the mood for stuff like Nick Cave or kind of Lou Reed kind of stuff, um, they've been around forever, and this record is really, really good. All right, Tuffley, what you been listening to? Oh boy. Um, well, I, a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of reissues and uh, a lot of things of bands that I've seen that have just come through town. Um, I uh, I got a chance to see uh, Metric and Garbage and the Noel Gallagher show, um, and, oh, and my yeah. show was not my show did not experience a bomb threat, so I did get to see the whole thing. Um, sorry, New York, but that was good. And uh, Garbage has a EP out now um, that's uh, called Witness to Love that includes the uh, the Cities and Dust cover that uh, they've Ooh. been throwing about. It was a record day. Uh, it was a record door st- uh, record store day exclusive, and now it's just available for digital and streaming. Uh, so it's uh, it's an EP called Witness to Your Love, uh, which is also the single that they had out for a while. Uh, so you can grab that. Um, I am. Uh, there was the uh, Pet Shop Boys box that may have been mentioned previously uh nope. smash i have ne- never mentioned this yet oh <laughs> um that is the singles collection through i believe 2020 uh that uh that is that is great because they were always they've always been a great singles band and uh it's nice to have them all cleaned up and remastered in one spot um there's also a uh blue note just released um or remastered and re-released mad libs shades of blue which if you're into breakbeat or hip hop or jazz, that is just an incredible record. Um, they basically let Mad Lib, who is a, if you don't know, who is a uh, big, big rap producer, occasionally a musician, uh, occasionally an MC, but he, uh, a lot of people, especially people who listen to hip hop will know him from Mad Villain uh, with MF Doom. Um, but uh, at one point, Blue Note lets him go through the archives and picks out stuff that, you know, anything he feels like he wants to do a remix or a record of, they let him do. And it's a collection of that. And Blue Note has put out a uh, spiffy uh, remaster of it. Uh, that's, I believe, two CDs and two vinyls, uh, two records, uh, which is really nice. And uh, it's in their classic series. So it looks like it's even the records look like the classic Blue Note releases. So it just looks pretty cool and it sounds great. And uh, I've kind of been following and this is kind of the rabbit hole that the de la soul remasters have led me through uh which have been uh, by the way which are out and are freely available and go buy those two we love you dave um and that's about it for me all right well, that's a lot so this past week um i've been listening to and anthony mentioned this last week but i've been listening to the nita strauss record which is just a pile driver. It's so good. It's got a lot of guest vocals. There's uh, instrumental tracks and then anything with, with uh, vocal has got a guest on it. And, and it's just really good. Anthony talked about that plenty last week, so I don't want to go into that too much, but I have absolutely loved it. And then a couple of things that I've picked up from Rob. One, the last couple of shows, he has mentioned an act called sleepy kitty so i've been doing a little investigation on sleepy kitty and um it, it's going to warrant a little more um some of their stuff appeals to me some of it kind of doesn't um but i'm going to give them some more time and see where i kind of fall on that 
but that's been kind of fun. I've enjoyed that. And then one other thing, this is somebody that um, Rob mentioned in past episodes. It's been, it's been a, a good while since uh, he's mentioned it. And that is a band called the Reds, Pinks and Purples. And uh, yes. Oh my God. And so I never really paid any attention to it. He would, he would mention them like episodes in a row and I would think, Oh, I should look into that. And I never did. But then like a week or two ago, I just happened to notice on my Spotify that there was a new single from the reds, pinks and purples called unlovable losers. And I thought, well, let me just listen to that. Phenomenal. Freaking one guy. loved it. Yeah. Freaking loved yeah. it. And so I went back and listened to some other stuff too. And uh, so I might, I might be converting into a new fan of this. So <laughs> yeah, he Rob's yeah. recommendations warm on you. They're time release. They're set to go off at a certain point in time. Like, and then you realize, Oh medicine. God, he's a genius. You know, well, well, Glenn Donaldson pretty much does all this stuff on his own in his yeah. bedroom. And he released like, it's frustrating because he releases a new record like every six days. And it's like that Carsey uh, headrest kid. What is that? Um, yeah. It's like, stop this, you know? Um, and they're just, you know, it's, it's like, it's perfect Morrissey music for people that don't want to like Morrissey anymore. Right. Uh, um, but it's also really good pop music, right? He's really got a sense of a lot of things. You know, it's a little bit of Rufus Wainwright. It's a little bit of the magnetic fields. It's a little bit of the Smiths. It's a little bit of that like wall of sound stuff, but it's also like fifties pop. I mean, he just says so many things he throws into his records that are, that are great. So, and also sparks. Cause I saw sparks last week and they were fantastic. Yay, Sparks. Oh, yeah. You you saw Sparks and Taylor Swift last week. Back to back. Yeah. yeah. They Might Be Giants opened for them at the Hollywood Bowl over the weekend. Yeah. So. Yeah. I'm kind of curious to see what comes out of that. So yeah. I ended up getting to review Taylor Swift for Louder Than War. And um, the long story short is we had like a 35 minute window to get to the concert without it falling to pieces. Right. Because Arrowhead Stadium is literally in Uzbekistan. So um, we got there. And so we saw um, Gracie Abrams, who's J.J. Abrams' daughter. She opened. She was fantastic. Yeah, she is. Um, and I'd never heard her before. Muna, I've heard some of their records. I've never seen them live. They have a very energetic um, stage show. I've never seen a band who is like opening for a superstar that just says, well, I have this big giant stage. Yeah. I'm going to use it. So they're running all over Taylor Swift's stage. And, and, and so they were lively. And then I will just say, you know, as someone that went into this appreciating everything Taylor Swift does, but not necessarily loving all of her music. Yeah. Um, as opposed to my wife who really caught on to her during the pandemic and the folklore stuff. Mm. Um, I was fascinated with like how the stage moved, how the costume changes did, how they transitioned from the different eras and everything. Yep. But she came out swinging with those first seven songs from Lover. Yep. She came out swinging and it was noisy and it was loud. Um, and then she transitions really well. She's got a great sense of what works musically and what doesn't. Um, she premiered a video. So anytime I've seen an artist show a video yeah. at a concert. You, you were on a good night. Because yeah. her new re-record had just come out that day, so she played a couple of the new vault tracks as the surprise songs. She debuted her new video for you. You you were there on a good night, buddy. 
Yeah, and you know, you mentioned that. I said, well, I don't know if she's doing anything special for that. But then she came out and said, okay, it's the release party for this record. And yeah. even the people next to us didn't think that they were going to mix up the playlist very long. Well, what they did is they added about 25 minutes to a three and a half hour show. Um, so, right. um, yeah, um, it's the largest group of people I've ever been to a concert at with 87,300 and something. Jeez. Right. But there were people that got there at noon, one or two o'clock just to get the merch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All the way through. Oh, yeah. And they're singing every song. They're dancing to every song. They're they're physically and utterly like exhausted and they're having the time of their life. I'm tired just looking at them. And then um, you know, you've got this the thing that was powerful, you have these generations of women that are together, like the the mom who grew up listening to her, and then she brought her daughter, and then her daughter's maybe bringing her young daughter, right? And then you've got like just these really incredibly I don't know how to explain this community, like the a woman brought her own snow cone machine and set it up in the lot in the, in the parking lot. <laughs> That's you awesome. Know, people are handing out front, like we're on the we're on the bus to get there, and this little nine year old girl taps me, says, "Excuse me, sir," and I said, "Yeah," because you don't have a friendship bracelet, and I said, "No, I don't." She goes, "Well, I have one for you," and she gave Janet my <laughs> friendship bracelet. Yes, right. And yes. like, it's the only concert I've ever been to where like everybody's painfully nice, like nobody was an asshole. Right, it's like it's like the reverse Mean Joe Green Coke commercial. Yeah, it was like just the little kid gives the foot the grumpy football player, and then they've got <laughs> you know they're tailgating um, at, at a football stadium, and then so then there's like people that were setting up outside their cars. They brought their own little karaoke things and setting that up. There was a lady handing out flyers for people that came to do merch. She was setting up ad hoc panels on Taylor Swift. <laughs> And so people were pulling up and she had folding chairs in her in her car and she set them up outside and the people were coming up and just talking about what her music meant to them and stuff. It was just, what is this? Right. You you say Taylor Con, but it actually was because the cosplay at this thing is off the chart. San Diego Comic Con cannot compete with this. It's interesting that you mentioned that because I went to the cure. I went to the first night of the cure here in Atlanta and they had started to do they, they did the same thing that Taylor did, which is interesting um, that they had a, they, their merch shop. They had a merch booth out in front of the show before the show that yeah. you could go to yeah. and yeah. just buy merch, even if you didn't have a ticket, um, which is the thing Taylor's been doing. Yeah. And I always thought that's the first time I've seen that, but then I yeah. heard that they had done that with Taylor. So, but you know, and, it works out for Taylor because this this tour, you've got eighty thousand people in the stadium. Yeah, you literally have thousands more people who just hang out in the parking lot who don't have a ticket to the yeah. show and just listen to the show well, and have their and own the concert thing, and buy and the, the merch. Thing is, because of the Westboro Baptist Church protesting the shows, they wouldn't let anybody who didn't have a ticket on the parking lot okay. once the show started. Really? So they they put the merch. They that's why they moved up the merch start. And so okay. there's all of these people that are like along the road going into air. Why do you build an NFL stadium with one entryway? I don't know. But um, there's people like parked wherever they can park that they can listen to however they want to yeah. listen to it. Right. Um, that was inter- interesting. Musically, though, you don't get tired. You don't get um, 
exhausted. It's very fresh and interesting. Every era had its own color, its yes. own fashion, its own style. Yes. I was really fascinated with, okay, I'm watching these people go off stage over here. I'm looking over left to see what's coming, right? I was really fascinated by the whole technical aspects of it. You know, and the, people weren't getting out of that stadium parking lot till like two or three in the morning and they're still singing and screaming and dancing. And, um, you know, there is a hangover with that. That's, that's sort of a phenomenon in and of itself. So I was very impressed with her presence, her way that she connects to her audience. She manages to do this stadium show with 70, 80,000 people, but you feel like you're at an intimate show with her. Yeah. Right. I don't know how she does it, but it's great. Sparks was the first show I saw after the um, pandemic. And I didn't think they were going to be as euphoric. I told, I, I, I messaged uh, Anthony because um, there's one or two parts of their set where you cry because it's so amazing. And they, damn it, they maybe do it again. They were fantastic. They, they still had the energy. Uh, the new songs translate well live. They didn't do the same set list that they did. You know, their set, their shows are so recent to the other tour. They could have just done the same set show, but they didn't. Um, they had a really great energy. And unlike Taylor Swift, everyone there was roughly my age. So it was very, very comforting. <laughs> and and the merch table was small and manageable. So that was pretty great. And you could, you know, you could walk to, to the venue. You know, we took a, we took a shuttle, um, the tram. They have like a streetcar, a streetcar bus. We just took that back to the hotel. It wasn't like a three-hour trek to get back home. So they were conversely different concert experiences. Um and I'm glad I saw Taylor Swift because it was like, this is, regardless of who the artist is, it's an artist at the apex of their career yeah. that is changing how touring is going to happen in terms of ticketing, presentation. Um, the hysteria is real. You know, it's, it's not anything to mock or make fun of. It is not, you know, it's not like when you watch Britney where you think it's very superfluous or just kind of plastic. Yeah, there is a very grassroots sort of warmth to it that is just really interesting. So agree. And, and even like on the face of it, she's literally touring five concurrent albums. Yeah. Yes. And and that's been because if you go back to Lover and the two yeah. folklore albums and the re-releases and Midnight's. Yes, exactly. It's, exactly. It's literally like she's literally she's touring her entire catalog, but she is the current things she's touring are five records. Right. And she's doing two acoustic songs every night that are surprise yeah. songs. Yep. And it's really engaging the fans with each other about, Oh, what song do you want to hear? Not do, but it, it's just hard and grown two sizes. No, one and a half. It was, it was interesting. <laughs> in that it was, it was, it was interesting too, because people just, yeah, they did have to half. people just are crazy about her. Right. Yeah. But musically she backs it up. You know, yeah. nine out of 10 times when people do that, you're like, really? You know, but like, yeah, she's, she's all in, man. All right. So that wraps it up for this week. Uh, we will be back next week. Our, our next show comes out the night before the anniversary of the launch of MTV. So we're going to be doing a special MTV episode. So stick around for that. Um, Tuffley, where can people find more about you on the internet? Well, I've been doing some shuffling of some of my intranets, um, but you can find the universe of me at uh, link tree slash jam Sweet. Rob? So you can find me 
um, like Mr. Tuffley on needcoffee.com on the Weekend Justice podcast. Um, also, every month, Mr. Tuffley does uh, a randomizer Spotify playlist if you want to keep up with uh, the new stuff the kids are listening to, but also stay fresh with kind of old jams. Check that out. Um, uh, but you can find me on the Need Coffee podcast. Also, um, I do a show on Louder Than War Radio uh, online at Louder Than War Radio uh, or on Mixcloud. It's Mondays from 6 to 8 Greenwich time, uh, 1 to 3 Eastern, 12 to 2 Central. It's got all kinds of music that people in my family scratch their head about, so I'm sure you might like it as well. And then uh, Wednesdays, I do a show on KDHX in St. Louis called Juxtaposition. That's 7 to 9 Central. And if you're busy, um, you can check that out on the streaming app at kdhx.org. All the shows are archived so if you've got a bull python, you've got to pull out of the toilet or something, you can do that and then listen to the show later. So uh, by all well, means, I mean, listen I to mean, those. You're selling yourself short. You can listen to them while you're having plumbing problems. It's fine. Yes. And many people do. <laughs> Next position, it unclogs your pipes. Wow. Jesus. <laughs> all right. I don't have one of those cool link tree things that Tuffley has, but. I do have one website that catches all my crazy nonsense, and that is CosmicCreative.com. K-O-Z-M-I-C Creative.com. All right. We'll be back next week with our MTV show. I'm looking forward to it. Everybody have a great week. Take care. Keep rocking on, and we'll see you soon. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.